what in your opinion is the scariest part of a witch to you? Like what about witches to you makes them so scary? I don't know, man. I'm not scared of witches. Witches don't scare me. Witches are awesome. Really? Yeah, absolutely. Witches are awesome. I love witches. We need more witches. What's the scary witch? I mean, you got, you got the, anything from folklore, like the, the, the second you get to the witches of folklore and what they do, the corruption, the slow insidious aspects and spells of the, uh, that they employ and their twisted motivations, man, like they are otherworldly and creepy, without, I, but, I, but, with, but I still don't being buy humans. I don't buy it with the old lore and stuff because they're all baking gingerbread houses and eating babies' dreams and oh, shit. Oh, that's the like, sugar-coated Grimm's version. You no, should... I know the real one, too. They're still, like, boiling children into pies and shit, but it's all kid-based. It's clearly... That, to me, to is be. the scariest part. As a dad, the, like, preying on children and the abuse of children... And the using them in insidious ways, that's the scariest part to me about witches. Yeah, yeah, but it's all cautionary tales. So it's the same thing as the babysitter who gets the phone call from inside the house. Like I don't I don't buy it. Well, it's not real, but I'm talking about the myth. Within the myth. For me as a construction worker, it's the discovering the jars full of piss and nails and hair, uh, hidden in little places. I should stop leaving those around your house. Thank you, you. Yeah, please. It's a mimic. The Roundtable Dungeons and Dragons discussion podcast, where you never know what you're going to get. Welcome to another episode in our conversation on the big bad evil guys of Dungeons and Dragons that we like to call portfolios. I'm Brad, and with me today are Dan and Adam, and this episode is called Hags, Vice Scream Crones. Are you proud of that one? I'm pretty proud of that one. That, no. That's you, one of my favorites so far. You should be. Yeah. All right. We've previously covered Beholders, Illithids, the Elder Elementals, Celestials, high-powered constructs, and some of the biggest, nastiest monstrosities from both the Forgotten Realms and Magic the Gathering campaign settings. And of course, this is the third part of our four-part conversation on hags. For all of these episodes and more, including a buttload of humanoid mob monsters and a whole pile of fiends, you can jump over to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and dozens of other podcast apps, or you can check out our YouTube page and playlist on monsters that we've built there. This episode of the It's a Mimic podcast is going to zoom in on the hags that you can't find in the Dungeons & Dragons Monster Manual. We're going to touch on the Anis Hag, the Ver Hag, and the Dusk Hag. The panel of Dungeon Masters has stirred the pot looking for every tasty morsel of information to be found, but some of the answers are definitely more horrifying than the others. I can't believe how much attention has been spent on hags in 5th edition so far. Before we go any further, I'm wondering, Dan, Adam, do you guys rely on hags when it comes to using witches in your campaigns? 100%. No, witches for me are always druids or diviners or... I, I look at Madam a Eva, right? Sure, yeah. And yeah. I go I go that direction for witches. I want... I, I Witches to me are Wiccan. Mm. Okay, yeah. yeah. Right? And I go in that general feel, right? Uh, I guess I guess then if... It's not Hocus Pocus for me. If, Hocus Pocus is hags. Yeah, like if, if, if I am framing... Uh, um, which is in those two lights, then yeah, there's two different paths. It's either I'm going with like a um, cultist NPC class for this random NPC named, you know, Tabitha something, blah, 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 right? Like I'm, I'm, I'm doing, I'm doing that with them. But if I'm going for like the malevolent force that has sold her soul to gain at like absolute power and just seeks to corrupt, nah, man, I'm going hags. Well, it's like, it's the reason I covered Babala Saiga in the last uh, hags episode yeah. at the very sure. end there because not a hag technically a witch but is so hag-like hag -like that yeah. it, 
I feel like I, it's weird that they made that I think Fifth has done this strange blurring between the two. No, it's always been like that in D&D. Is it it's always, always been that it's way? It's always been yeah. that Okay. Because, yeah. yeah, it's very clear that... No one, can, no one can make up their mind if witches are their own separate thing, or if they are hags, or if they're wizards, or if they're an offshoot of warlocks, or like... Well, Pathfinder, that, witches were legit a... a player a, class. A player class. Yeah, right. But what... what what role did they fill though? Were they, just, they were a caster. Yeah, they were just a, yeah, like what, a, they were like your sorcerer. They were your hexer. They were somewhere between warlock. They, and... They're an int base. They were another int base caster. Oh, cool. Okay, yeah, but like, flavored more like a warlock or a sorcerer. Yeah, the, what we have as warlocks in five B is very similar to the flavor we had, especially packed to the chain, because mm-hmm. every yeah. single witch got its familiar, mm-hmm. right? Which is something I feel is kind of missing in five E. When it comes to uh, familiars I, at all, no, no, no. Four, four hags, right? But for, yeah, yeah. I I would like to actually see a witch class into fifth edition. I, what do you guys? Well, it's one of the three or four classes that everyone complains are just straight up missing. Right, another yeah. one is warlord. Everyone's waiting for the warlord. No thanks. Yeah, I I, I, I don't care. Like uh, we have the battlemaster. You do have the yeah, battlemaster to get that warlord. flavor that I need, right? Or you so, want the cavalier or something like that for your battlemaster? That's kind of the same flavor. Yeah, so like I'm just I'm not eh, yeah I don't feel the need to get the witch class now. If you want to make it a witch, just make it a warlock subclass. Yeah, yeah that would I'm be okay. You. Yeah. So we've covered quite a bit of background lore regarding hags in the previous two hag related episodes, but today we're going to go a little deeper into how to make a unique hag or hag coven for your own campaign with the information that's given to us in Volo's Guide for Monsters. So Volos gives us a list of personality traits, ideals, bonds, and flaws in order to get a better understanding of what makes a hag a hag. Some hags enjoy adding wagers to their bargains in order to add some risk, while some others might require all the bargains they strike to be signed in the blood of the person making the bargain. Or other bodily fluids. We're going to touch on that here, coming up here, because I've got some thoughts. Oh boy. All right. Uh, Maybe your hag wants to spend a century as each type of hag and eventually becoming something more, something greater than the sum of its parts. Or maybe they don't desire to ever even be a part of a covering because they would not want to lower themselves to be a part of something being equal to them. Yeah. You may find a hag who has a specific hatred towards a singular family and steals every one child per generation. Or maybe the hag has lost one of her daughters and do anything to get her back in order to train her to become a powerful hag. Cool. Maybe do, do hags get training? They just turn 13 and poof, new hag. But right? I think that you still have to learn the ins and outs of being a hag. Well, I think that and develop your skills. Th- there's like the leader of the coven, right? Yeah. But I think you, there's no I think the grandmother and auntie titles kind of give that it's not like a formal wizard school, but I'd imagine there's some sort of like tutelage. Apprenticeship. Yes. There is a hierarchy to hag culture. Uh and because of that, I think you're right, Brad. Yeah. Like the granny's gonna tell the auntie's gonna tell the newborn. I thought that was I thought that was just commands. You follow me because I'm the eldest and I have the most power. So you're I see I saw it more there's like some of that as well, but I still think there has to be some there's a learning curve to anything, right? Yeah, but I look at it more... Okay, for me, personally, I don't see the leader of the coven training up someone else. I would say, here's your cauldron, here's a whole bunch of shit, figure out what you can do based on what you've seen us do. Right, and it's very much But they would have to see it at some point, because assuming that they're... Well, also, these are supernatural beings that can just inherently know how to do your basic ideas. Now, I'm going to push back on that a little bit, because I'm fairly certain we see with... Um, Baba Yaga and her tendency in D&D lore of pulling um, aspiring witches and, and 
uh, people who are like-minded in that realm into her coterie. It's not a coven. It's just under her supervision to teach them the way. We have several Bobby, uh, Baba Yaga spawn, which she calls her daughters, um, high-level hags in the world. So I think there is some tutelage happening. Right. But those but aren't hags that she's no, tutelage. No, they straight up are. No, no, they straight up aren't. Those are her literal daughters that she has birthed. Tasha those are hags, but is Tasha not is a hag. not a hag. No, Tasha's not a hag, but like there, there are... And there are a number of others that she's taken in to like boost their magical powers that are witches. But they're not but hags. But they're not hags. This is where D&D gets fucky, right? Like, And again, it depends on which edition you are reading as well. Yeah, that's fair. Mm. So... Dan, you're right, and then they rewrote it in 4th edition, and they haven't been clear in 5th edition since, so I don't have a solid answer. Well, now they're just wizards, to be well, fair. Well, here's, here's Wizards a never will give us a solid answer. Can a mortal become a hag? No. It's just straight up no? Well, Absolutely as a not. child, when you are eaten, you then become the hag 13 years later. Well, no, then a hag with your face I guess so. Yeah, it's true. It's not really you, is it? No. Yeah, fair enough. But no. yeah, no, you can't really make a deal. To be, there's nothing in the lore that we've covered to this point that... As a matter of fact, when you get stolen as a baby, the hag eats, eats you, you, then gives birth to That's another true. hag, it's... and has probably replaced you as well. Like, there's, there's multiple hags being born and created for yeah. every child that goes missing. Uh, we covered this in one of the previous yeah, we episodes, yeah. but like... That's that's fucky. That's, it is. Yeah. So there should be a lot more hags than we actually get in fifth edition, just based on the fact that they come in groups and they tend to to spawn. They're always vying for power. I feel like every village has a hag, whether they know it or not. Mm-hmm. But I mean, all hags are pretty low CR, so it's not like they're they're pretty easy. To, you could probably find somebody to dispatch one. Every every twenty villagers can take out a hag. Yeah. Uh, or at least find some sort of venture who's capable of look, doing it. Every 20 villagers can take out a hag, but three villagers are walking back to tell the tale. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I'm, uh, I'd be interested to see them. Like, we see a lot of them. Like, they see our six to eight, right, is kind of where they sit. Yeah. And that's when they're not in a coven. No, so, they're less than that even. I mean, C hags are CR2, right? Green hags are four. Good. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm looking at a lot of the ones that... Um, we're going to get into higher CRs We're going to get into some higher CRs today, for sure. But, like... You need you need a full village to take out a, an an anatag, right? You need a full village to take out a verhag. So like it's it and half the time they know you're coming too, so you're at a disadvantage. Yeah. And then you just give them three, three, three or four minions. The, sometimes they're one of the villagers and just like yeah. watching watching yeah. from and the then they, get her, you're going get her. into their lair too, right? So <laughs> I think I saw her go left. Fucking idiots! <laughs> I'm picturing very Simps. I'm getting Simpsons vibes. Oh yeah, yeah. Anyways, so uh, let's also look at. I mean, your hags can be flawed, right? Maybe they have an allergy to one of the creatures in their service or an ingredient required to perform some of their spells or practices. Or maybe she is weakened every time there's a full moon, right? Our hags aren't completely invulnerable. They can have flaws just like your player characters. Yeah, and they should. Yeah, they often do. And then they have creative workarounds. This is when a DM gets to get real creative with stupid shit. Yes. So. And, and, and just as inspiration, always have like a... It should be a supernatural reason. Right? Like, you say how it was weakened when the full moon's out or something yes. like that, right? Like, if they walk too close to running water, have some have some sort of weakness or effect happen to them. Like It, could, it could just be a curse from another hag, because you notice how all hags yep. can bestow, but not a single one can remove. Not a single... There are some that can there remove. There are some We're that can get remove. Into it. Oh, shit. Okay, well, the original thing... But, yes, your basic yeah. hags cannot. As you gain more power, that changes. 
So there are many ways to uniquely create a hag, and Volos is a wealth of ideas or triggers for you to make one suited perfectly to your campaign or to take advantage of your players. Hmm. So let's dive into some of those. The, Volos also dive. Volos also provides us with a deeper insight into the weird magic that is possessed and used by hags using ingredients and magic charms to produce spell effects of an appropriate level for the hag CR. This is a good way to add some unique flavor to your hag. Give them charms, give them potions, whatever it is, but make sure that those spells that they are using are of an appropriate challenge rating. Yeah. If you want your hags to have a mount or a vehicle to help them get around, we'll find some good suggestions in here as well. Perhaps your hag gets around atop a giant pig a goat, or even a sickly cow. It's even suggested that a bargain could have resulted in a hag acquiring a sentient mount. Perhaps that giant rat or raven that she is riding isn't actually what it appears to be, but has been transformed into that form due to a deal gone wrong with the hag. The mount doesn't have to be a living creature at all and is only limited by your imagination. Does your hag ride around in an animated eagle's nest? Have they found the skull of a giant lizard and fashioned it into a moving throne? Now, should your party manage to get their hands on one of these fabulous machines, they may be disappointed to find out that the magical use is limited to the hag herself, unless you are willing to make a deal. I don't like that. If, you don't? if I if I kill a hag and she's running around on it, like, oh uh, shit, okay. What what's the weirdest magical? Uh... No, no, no. I'm all for that. You should not yeah. be able to pick up a broomstick and just fly. Yeah. I, I, yes, I. Uh... So it's not because the object itself is not imbued with magic. It is the hag imbuing it herself in order to get around. She's using Un- the magic to animate specifically it. like Baba Yaga's hut, which sure. very specifically has a magical component built into it. Which but we're looking at the most powerful hag at that point yeah. to create that sort of. Yeah, effect. that's true. Right, your general hag, your run of the mill hag. I'm, I'm, I'm more a fan. Like if if a hag swoops in on a magic broom, it just feels like you're pulling the rug out from your party. Uh, to be like, yeah, no, that doesn't actually work as your magical item, right? Like, that's okay. No, I like I the idea of of the hag is able to pick up any broom and, and do that. It is magical yeah, instead enough, of yeah. it just the, being ma- the broom itself isn't the magical thing. It's the fact that the hag can grab whatever she wants and make it magical. Yeah, and she just has to tuck whatever piece of wood she wants between her legs, and it just it just can do special things. Are you gonna touch this one, or do I have to? I don't want to touch on Mad, uh, Adam's special wood, special magical wood. wood between his legs. Yeah. Okay, hold on. This is actually a good segue for me. I said we we're gonna get yeah, go, into this go for one. it. All right. So we've spoken in the past about in all in all seriousness, we've spoken in the past about session zeros and about clearing shit with your players. Yep. If you are going to bring a hag in and you know that early on, really have this conversation about sexuality and whatnot, and know where to where to push the boundaries and and specifically when not to. Because when you are reading Volos, it straight up recommends sexually harassing your players in one part. Yes, yeah. it does. If you're playing with the hag, right? So so be aware of that. And just because you think it might be funny to have the hag see the bar for the first time and go, oh, nice package, it may make someone around the table uncomfortable. Yeah. So it's a weird thing that I feel like in... In like 2021, they would not have printed that shit. Yeah. Right? Yeah, that's probably so, true. So I like that. I always have something weird yeah. and sexual about eggs in my campaigns. Um, usually they're beautiful women that are like seducing men in just to steal their essence. You can read between the lines on that. But there are a number of, of people around my table that I know uh, pull that punch a little bit, right? Yeah. yeah. I, when, when one person's away... I can get a little bit more weird and detailed with it, uh, but when they come back, I've got to ease off on that. So yeah, the same the, the same goes for ha- hags and children. Right? Yes, the the whole violence against kids is go is a vital part of hags, 
And make sure you don't have any like young parents that might have an issue with that. Yeah. Right. Or um, at least tone it to a level where it's not overly graphic. Again, Whatever it's you're, one, it's we talk about session zero. Yeah, right? it's one of those things you bring. Look, up. you, you can talk about slowly skinning layer by layer a pig and how it screams and whatnot, yeah. or even an adult villager. But you start doing it to a four year old, and everyone's super pissed. Yes. Right. So Very keep so. that shit in mind. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, back to back to magical wood. Yeah, it's the hag imbuing it with the magic, and the magic is coming from the hag. When she lets go of the wood, the magic is gone. Story of my life. (laughs) (laughs) All right. As unique as the hag herself, her lair is also going to be suited to her personality. Whether it's a dead giant tree trunk, a skeletal-looking cave, or a deceptively charming cabin in the woods, a hag will find a home that suits her needs and her own personal flair. These homes are usually situated in a place where the barrier between the realm and the Feywild is thin, allowing them easy access between the realms to make deals in both of them. If they do not choose a space like this, it is likely because they've found a place rich with magic that amplifies the power of their spells or their charms. Perhaps it's a ruined wizard school or a long-abandoned cemetery forgotten in the woods. They may make their home in a ruined mausoleum. The choice is up to you. That said, they will want to be close to mortals in order to make their bargains, but not so close that they have too many visitors. Every hag home has some sort of escape hatch, self-destruct mechanism, or other means of escape. A hag will always want to live to fight another day. And sometimes that means of escape can just be a potion of polymorph. Yeah. Yep. Right? Just, and out the chimney, right? Like, it doesn't have to really be something like a literal escape hatch or a back door. No. We talked about how green hags can just disappear into the water last, a couple yeah. episodes ago, right? Maybe she's got a pool that li- links the outdoors. Anything like that. It doesn't have to be literal. She just jumps down the cistern. Yeah. Oh. Into the outhouse. Yeah. The lair of a hag provides her with special actions should combat erupt within her domain. These actions are available only to grandmothers or the occasional powerful auntie due to the power that they provide. A hag of any variety has the ability to pass through solid objects or surfaces for a round, or she can magically open or close any doors and windows she can see and magically lock them should she desire. Any hag can do that. In their lair? Within their lair. (laughs) Okay. You're locked in and it's magically sealed. Good luck getting out. I love that because now it's a scavenger hunt you're, to figure out what the fuck you're doing from here. Yeah. You're locked in here with me, yeah. right? Um, a green hag has the ability to create an illusory duplicate of herself. And while it can't take actions, the duplicate can move around and interact with the environment until it takes damage or is dismissed, which lasts up to an hour. Which, if you are a cunning enough DM, the amount of fuckery, fuckery you could do with something that can't take any like material action, but it can talk... Yep. It can move. It can be seen. It can also interact with objects. Like yes. That, that's the thing. So it can just pick up that vial over there, dump it into the cauldron, and noxious smoke starts to fill the room. Yep. Yeah. It could, it could utilize the charms that the green hag has spent years making. Yep. Absolutely. Or it can just be the face to the party, and they think they've got the hag cornered, and sure enough, she's... <laughs> floating in the water behind yeah, them. way over there. Sea hags have the ability to fill up to four 10-foot cubes of water with ink, causing the space to be heavily obscured, or... My favorite, they can create a simulacrum of one humanoid creature for the rest of the round. And this simulacrum will be made of debris within the lair. Think seaweed, stones, dead fish. Cool. Like anything nasty that would be within their lair. Night hags can use their lair action to banish a target to a prison demiplane until the next round. Or it can fling up to three creatures 30 feet in the air. And should you manage to hit the roof, you're going to take damage on the way up and damage on the way down. Yep. That's uh, that's night haggy. Yeah. Yeah. 
So I touched on these three because we've already covered the hags, but we didn't touch on the lure actions. We'll cover some more lure actions as we go through the new hags today. Sure. Now, within the home of a hag, you will find minions and pets of all sorts serving the whims of the hag. These creatures can take many forms, both sentient and non-sentient. Some examples include servants such as helmed horrors, scarecrows, or a rug of smothering. Or perhaps your hag prefers a more forceful presence and employs bugbears, jackal wares, or mean locks in their employ. <laughs> I like the idea of a phantasmal killer just being an unseen servant. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Or um, shadows. Mm-hmm. Right, would literal be a, shadows. Yeah, literal shadows that they have removed from people. I'm are... getting Peter Pan vibes. Well, we also see with a lot of other ones, like some uh, some hags employ red caps yes. and various small fey creatures as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Those are some of the ones listed in Volos as well. I just we'd already touched on them. Yeah, so like I, I any small weak thing will definitely kind of fall into it, but. Some we hags, talked about Onis last time. Some but... hags, yeah. Onis, ogres, trolls. Yep. Like, they they will take whatever they can manipulate and manipulate it. Right? Anyone they can make a deal with. The one that I really want to play with is the skeletal reanimated um, bones of a fairy dragon. Hmm. Why? Just because I think that's really flavorful. I think it's really neat, too, that they would have, like, a corrupted fey creature. Absolutely. That used to be Seelie. Cool. Yeah. yeah. I was expecting a pun. But you actually had something. Yeah, I look, we don't play enough with the Seelie and Unseelie. The fey yeah. nature of hags is almost an afterthought a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. So I, I want to leave that they're that they're fey. Yeah. If, if there is uh somehow an eighth day of the week is generated, um uh that is going to be a game night where I run a fey campaign. Like I, I desperately want to run a straight up domains of delight level fey campaign. That would be lovely. Yeah. Now, should you manage to expel a hag from her lair, or even more impressively kill her? you will find an interesting collection of treasure that you won't find in other lairs. Hags are generally disorganized and tend to throw their belongings wherever there is room, so finding and recognizing the valuable items may prove difficult. They're like toddlers. Oh, that hit home. (laughs) There is a good chance that much of the loot is cursed or may not be what it appears to be, so be warned. Perhaps you found the preserved dwarf head. Should you be foolish enough to grab it by the beard, you can see through its eyes. Maybe you found a small painting of a field that changes just after midnight each day to show you the weather for the next day. The contents of a hag's lair is limited only by your imagination. The influence of a hag extends well beyond their own lair and into the surrounding region as well. The more powerful the hag, the more powerful and numerous are the effects. Small creatures related to the nature of the hag may be far more numerous and infesting the area. Beasts with a negligible intelligence, two or less, may start to be aggressive to anyone entering the area. There may also be effigies, dolls, carvings, paintings on the trees or rocks in the area, warning intruders of a magical presence. That's one thing that I always really liked, and they got it wrong in the Blair Witch Project, which, by the way, great inspiration for hag shit. Mm-hmm. All of these, these figures hanging in the trees and shit should not be put there by the hag. They should be put there by quicklings and other like other creatures to say, hey don't go into this area and the hag should be trying to knock them down yeah, all of yeah. the time right and this should be just a, these little totems should kind of be a war between the fey creatures i really like that i think that's a good well, use you see in um what is it goblin tribes they have their go- goblin totem poles and the edges of their uh territories yeah yes. that, that function is like warnings like hey don't come this way otherwise you're entering into our goblin yeah we'll, we'll kill you we, we will, will kill, enslave you. Yeah. Or kill you right this is the opposite where it's like other things going, guys, 
danger this way. Do not go. Yeah. I really feel like you should watch out for the clear open path in the cobblestone road. Right? Yes. When it's easy and well lit and fine, mm-hmm. that's the problem. Yeah. Yeah. Put some road markers out saying, hey, three this cookies way. this way. Yeah. The bre- little breadcrumb trail or yeah. vibrating broomsticks. Oh boy. <laughs> what? Follow your ears. <laughs> what? It would make sweeping so much easier. It would be. It yeah. would be. Yeah. Much like a dryer makes the laundry much easier. Stop. <laughs> Volos gives us a wealth of options and information for creating and running hags and should be looked at if you plan on using them in your homebrew campaign. That was a bit of an info dump. So before we move on, is there anything you guys want to add? Other than vibrating uh, broomsticks. Uh, no, nah, man. I You get full permission to be weird with hags. Yes, you do. So be weird with hags, right? And And outside of the box weird. And we've mentioned this before a couple times. If you are trying to um, find a way to be weird with hags and uh, for whatever reason your creativity is stifled or, or you're having trouble with that, look up a spell list, mm-hmm. see what the effect of the spell is, and then uh, in the DMG there's a list of trinkets yep. as well. Grab that list of trinkets, apply that spell to it, and figure out what you get. Yeah. Right? And if you want to get even more personal with it and you want to really come up with that extra little piece beyond that... Why do they have this trinket? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Where did they get it from? Where did they get it? Did they imbue it with this magical power or did it already come with it? Yeah. Why did they want it or why did they imbue it? Yeah. And when you start to go down the why of the hags and you start to get really weird with it, that's a really good way of going about it. That's just a general DM tip. If you're ever stifled creatively, creativity, Creatively. There it is. Fuck. Uh, with your words or with uh, any of your monsters or anything like that. Asking the question why is going to help you break out of there easier than anything else, in my opinion. It's Absolutely. just more difficult to do that with hags. Because they don't have the good and evil. They have the blue orange, yeah. right? Yeah. So um, you're really only limited by your own imagination when it comes to hags. Yeah. Uh, but then again, use your party as inspiration for your hag. Yeah, there's there's right. no reason why you're like you should if you're putting hags in your campaign, it's because you want your players to make deals with the hags, and if you're not doing that, you should. Honestly, when your player sits there for six weeks in a row, going, "When can I have this?" and then lists an item, and you keep saying, "Dude, you're in the middle of a dungeon." Yeah, right. Or we only have small villages. There's no magic shop here for you to go to, and they finally finally start to get like annoyed. Fine, give him a hag. Yep. Give him a hag with that item. Mm-hmm. This is how you say, hey, you get what you wanted, but... Yeah. Hello, everyone out there. This is Adam, and I just wanted to hit you guys with a quick update before we jump back into the episode. And that update is about the YouTube channel. Now, there have been a number of different uh, shows recently and projects that we've been working on. The Many Roads to Amelia, uh, Campaign Builder, The Next Touring the Multiverse... All of these are currently sitting in hiatus as well as a couple of other projects. Um, But another thing that has fallen by the wayside somewhat recently has been our YouTube channel. It's 10 or 12 episodes behind now. Um, But I am actively working on it and we're going to get it up and running and you guys should see some more activity. So for those of you who prefer to listen to the show by using the YouTube channel uh, and, and have been blowing up my inbox about it, um, I just wanted to let you know it's coming. It's going to be updated quickly. And enjoy the rest of this episode, where I'm certain that I'm right and Dan is wrong. All right, so let's get into talking about some of the specific hags that are found in Volos. Okay, uh, cool. Let's roll some dice. I got a six. I got a natural 20. And a nine for Adam. 
So, well, Dan, which one did you have? I had the Anisag. Okay. Yeah. And uh, the Anisag is the largest and most imposing and corrupting, in my opinion, of all hags. They sit in remote hills or mountains and are usually um, surrounded with large, easy manipulated, superstitious creatures like ogres and trolls that the hag uses as bodyguards. These hags are huge, with loose, warded flaps of gray-blue skin hanging off massive, disproportionate bodies. That made me uncomfortable. You're welcome. Being creatures of remote hills, they're also typically covered in dead foliage, skulls, twigs, and small, sewn-together scraps of supple leathers. More on that later. Also making me uncomfortable. Supple leathers. I do not like the sounds of any of that. (laughs) But before we get into any of the motivations of a hag, let's talk about their mechanics. They are typically eight feet tall, stout and thick-limbed with usually a massive hunched back. This means that the hags are are large-sized grandmothers of terror. They boast a solid AC of 17 and a massive HP pool of 10d10 plus 20 for a CR6 creature. They're also fast, deceptively so, moving at 40 feet around. Yeah, given the way you described the frame, that's surprising. It's, yeah. They're tall, though. They've got a... Yeah, that's got true. they got a longer long. stride. Um, I, I, I choose to, like, they would still shuffle, but it's in, like, that creepy Japanese horror movie kind of way where they just, like, are suddenly fucking there next to you. Maybe they just have a really small broom that they're riding that's... Yeah, you can't uh, see a and... remote control one. Yeah. I wasn't going. Dang, you always take us to the dirtiest places. So, anyways, these hags are Let's stronger than RC cars. <laughs> Fuck God, I hate you both. Uh, they are so. These hags are stronger than anyone else in your party, and supplement that massive strength of twenty-one with con, int, whiz, and charisma scores in the thirteen to fifteen range. With their dump stat being a twelve in dex. I wish but, I could dump at a twelve. Yeah, yeah, right. It's. I mean, they're, they're still quick. They're also particularly hardy with a bonus to con saves as well as resistances to cold damage on top of their normal resistances to physical attacks from non-magical weapons. They speak common, giant, and sylvan, hearkening to their fondness of ogres, history with the fey, and also they have the standard dark vision of 60 feet. Now let's get to the good stuff. Where they have innate spell casting, which is just three uses of disguise self that also lets them turn medium and fog cloud, It's their combat prowess that comes out in a very martial form. Each attack action has three attacks, one bite and two claws. And it's downright feral how it uh, plays out. They hit on a plus eight and do 3d6 plus five damage per hit, piercing with a bite. What CR are they? Six. (laughs) No, they're not, but okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So they hit on a plus eight. They do 3d6 plus five damage per hit, um, which is piercing with the bite. Um, which all of them are like jagged teeth of iron and stone, which plays into something a little bit later that's special with anise eggs. Um, and they have this slashing damage with their misshapen claws. They also, as a different alternative to their multi-attack, can give you a big old bear hug. This crushing hug hits also on a plus eight and does 9d6 plus five uh, bludgeoning damage. Sorry, we said CR6 a couple times, CR6. but yes? CR6. Good lord. This also automatically grapples when she hits. Now, until that grapple is broken, the grappled target will automatically take an additional 96 plus 5 damage at the start of the hag's turn. Jeez. Fortunately, this requires the hag's full attention, and she can no longer make any further attacks while she's grappling. Now, note that's just attacks. She's still got spells. She can still move around. She can still do her thing. Yeah, she still has actions, just not attacks. Attacks. Yes. Now... Anis hags particularly love kids. 
They don't have the same hatred of beauty and order and goodness like all their other twisted sisters. No, they love the weak and innocent. I want to rock. <laughs> I was thinking the yeah, same thing. Yeah. I'm glad you beat me to it. <laughs> so did I when I was typing it down. Anyways, uh, now they love the uh, they love the weak and innocent and tormenting and corrupting them. If left alone with a child, an anise hag will scoop them up, flay their soft, supple skin from the flesh, eat the rest, and then tan that skin and use it for furniture and clothing. I don't like that. In fact, you can usually tell an anise hag's house and lair by the smell. The ammonias and other tanning agents used to cure the child's skin being strong and hard to cover up. They're also experts in their craft, and Volo goes on to mention that their homes are also decorated and furnished with the cured flesh of their victims. Like, this isn't any Ikea spring collection that they've got. It's more of an Ikea. Boo! Moving on. If a hag cannot be left alone with a child, corrupting it slowly is also on the table. The Anis hag will give the child an iron token, an iron token, which is molded into a ring, coin, or some such other bauble, that then lets the hag communicate in whispered conversation with the kid as long as they are within 10 miles of each other. It is through this token that the hag will slowly convince the child that doing bad things is okay. Leave the house without permission. Kick your dog. Steal that kid's lunch. Murder your teacher. Burn down the church. Poison that paladin. Things like that. All these things are done in a quiet, whispered, it's you and me versus the world, kid. Your old granny's got your back kind of way. Now it gets worse. The hags can have up to three of these tokens active at any given time, which she can also use to locate the child should they go missing. And if someone tries to use the token to find the hag, she can deactivate it with, at will with no action, leaving a harmless non-magical bauble in the hands of any would-be diviner. Now, should the flow of children run dry on the Anis hag, she will use these same tactics with trolls, ogres, and other large stupid creatures often manipulating them into the same level of chaos with small iron bubbles without the ogres even knowing what's going on. Ooh, shiny. Yeah. So that's that's our that's our anise hags. That is I have thoughts. Yeah. yeah, let's get into it. Well, let's let's get into it. All right. So, I've got a few questions for you, but let's roll initiative to get into them. Sure. I got 7. I got the natural 20 this time. I got time. a 9 again. Huh, how about that? All right. So, first question that I'm going to put out, I guess to myself this time. Uh, what kind of environmental or social encounters would we come up with for Anis Hags? So at the natural 20, I'll go first. Yeah. Um, so I actually really like the regional effect of taking ogres, bigger creatures under their cool. control. So yeah. all of a sudden, the town is being flooded with these ogres or trolls, right? Something like that. They're starting to come into town. And all of a sudden, this kind old lady comes in. Up to the children says, come with me. I have an escape route away from these creatures. Oh, like kind of like a Pied Piper kind of situation? It, exactly. Yeah, I'm on board. So she's sending in the threat, right, by manipulating the ogres. And then, boom, in she goes, grabs the kid, says, Granny will keep you safe. And off they go. Yeah, I I like that even when, like, have the uh, the granny be, like, part of the village, right? A trusted part of the village. So, like, the, the family, like, the families give the kids to the old matron, you know, readily and then all of a sudden everyone's gone i don't understand why why are you going that far she runs the orphanage yeah oh yeah but i want to make it more personal for the party so here's my thing for a social encounter a beautiful woman is there and gets hit on by the bard just in the tavern right and this is your hag clearly set Mm -hmm. up your party's none the wiser but they don't they don't play with the bard they don't fuck around with the paladin or the rogue or anybody you know how every party has that mascot character Mm-hmm. Yeah. The the little goblin with a heart of gold. Yeah. That 
really likes the shiny baubles oh. and then will slowly get corrupted and everyone's like why am i not getting a full night's sleep here what what's wrong what like oh we always have the goblin hang back at camp to make dinner mm-hmm. and he's just poisoning the stew a little bit more every day because <laughs> it's me and you against everybody right don't worry you're helping them yeah. right yeah. and like that's so wonderfully ingenious that they're getting it's it's not one of the other players out to get them, and it is a betrayal without even being a betrayal. Yeah, it's not even the character's fault or the player's fault. Yeah. yeah, they just didn't stop this creature from getting this happy little item. And I wouldn't even have it go all golem with the item either. They may not even know that it's connected to the item, right? If you get, if your players get some sort of trinket or item or whatnot, wait seven or eight sessions and then tell them that they start to hear whispers when they wake up or mm-hmm. fall asleep. Yeah. Right. They'll never put that shit together. Especially if you play this on a cleric who maybe hasn't had a lot of interactions with their deity yet. <laughs> and all of a sudden the voice starts to pop into their head. The and warlock the thing, too is going to fall. And the things it's suggesting aren't necessarily, like you said, terrible things. They're just yeah. these little thoughts in their heads. Yeah. Every time they go to cast a healing spell, they hear a little voice. Is now the right time for that? Yeah. Right? Just like, that's so fucking insidious. Uh, uh, the other thing that I wanted to just point out, it's not quite a social thing, but you know how they're all about baubles and trinkets, but they're also tanning and whatnot? Mm-hmm. I love the idea of one of them in their own lair having a leather apron made of sewn together children's faces. Oh, yes. That yeah, is the that kind would never of wear out of there. Yeah. yeah. I also like the idea of hags in their lairs being naked all the time. Uh, like, yeah. just, okay. Just that... The, I don't need to wear clothes here. I'm not like, yeah, this is my own I don't natural. need to cover up. Yeah. And so. It's not a nudity thing. It's just, uh, yeah, it's they're a, not covering up. Look, they are. I have one robe that I wear everywhere, like one set of clothing. I'm yeah. not going to get the cauldron to boil over onto it. Right. I mean, so, a lot of the artwork shows them naked, anyways, depending on the type of hag. True. I mean, uh, to me, their clothing really informs as well how corrupted they are right and being creatures of corruption i having them wearing you could go really two paths you could have them wearing the beautiful well put together well manicured and groomed and cleaned clothing on top of this hideously deformed and grotesque feet uh, body or you could just have the clothing add to the grotesqueness i like the idea of them just being these old withered gross wrinkly and like when you peer in, you see her in her natural form. This is yes. the same as knowing her true name. Yeah. Right. Like it's it's almost voyeuristic, and you sh- you know you should not be looking at this. Well, it, and and this hags play on this with their uh, that that old trope that they have where they turn into something beautiful, and you always see guys, right? Yeah. You always see something that they are projecting. But you got to remember, like, an Anis Hag is eight feet tall and misshapen, like, knuckles are dragging on the ground if she was just standing still, right? Like, there's there's something very feral and bestial about her. Um, so I, 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 I... Why does she bother with clothes in the first place? Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, like, even in, the, even in the character art, there's, like, I think she's only wearing it because she just likes having that leather, like, that, that... That child skin hanging off of her gives her reminders of a good meal. It's like when I have a chunk of ice cream stuck in my beard. Just leave it there for a while. Ice cream, Adam. Is it ice cream? Ice cream. <laughs> Is it vice cream crones? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Battle Any more thoughts on that before we move on? No, we're no. good. All right. Let's talk about battle tactics for DMs if you're running them. 
Now, I don't know if you touched on them, Dan. Did you touch on the spell list for the Anis Hag? Uh, yeah, it's fairly small, ultimately. Like, they've got... Um, they've only got uh, Disguise Self and Fog Cloud. Um, and Well, Fog Cloud is enough to get close. To, Absolutely. To get close. Yeah, and, so they, and they get it three times a day. Yeah, so that was the one I wanted to play on was specifically the Fog Cloud. And then within that, the Grapple. Mm-hmm. Right? If you can get your upfront melee player within the fog cloud where no one else can see into it, right? All the people who like to stand back in combat, they have two choices. They either need to step into the cloud to get a better view and figure out what's going on, or they're going to hang out and hope for the best. So if she can center that fog cloud on herself, grapple your paladin, or maybe it's somebody weaker like your rogue, right? Or rely more on decks. Well, I, I would, uh, I don't, no, it's the wizard for me. You take the wizard into the fog cloud and you squish the ever living shit out of them. No, yeah, but, that, but, then, but then your melee players are going to go into that fog. To yes, try but and it's save a them. grapple. Breaking a grapple for a melee character is a lot easier than uh, breaking a grapple for a wizard. That's fair. It depends on the class. Too, and right? also she moves 40 feet. Most of your melees don't. You only yeah. have rogues and monks to worry about. Yeah, I suppose that's true. And they don't have really the strength to be able to, to grapple you back. Right? Yeah. So, yeah. Honestly, for me, it's not even the wizard. I'm going after the NPCs. Mm. Like this grapple with all with everything else. Imagine you are on an escort mission to get all of the kids home. Yeah, right. Oh, okay. You rescue yeah. them from the hag's lair, which was empty. She wasn't there. Yeah, it was and it's, surprisingly easy. Yeah. yeah, but now it's a mountainous pass with you know sharp cliff on both sides. The fog rolls in, and the kids start screaming because she's going to go in, grab them crunch you find the twist of broken body of a child and as you're sitting there going what did this you hear a second Another scream one. and a louder crunch nearby yeah. you could get very silent hill with a anise egg pretty quick and yeah. i really like that so that's mm. honestly that's how you would go about this she is meant to murder the shit out of npcs yeah, yeah. i mean her attacks are powerful uh for me when it comes to the uh, i i want to lean into the attacks being powerful she loves ogres. She loves trolls. And she doesn't look too dissimilar from them. Right? Mm. So a wave of trolls or ogres or whatever attack the city. And then there's this just one female troll that is just tearing things apart. And no, she's a little different. Yeah. Right? And she's doing the same, just like brutally tearing things as it's going. But then like avoiding the children. She's mm. not touching the kids. Right? She's not attacking the kids. Right? Or anything innocent looking. Right. She's killing everything else. She's ripping the legs off men and then sitting there and like patting the kid on the head. Right? And then moving past. Does it get into how she flays the children? No. It just says flays them. Okay. Because she's got long iron fingernails, right? Yeah. Yes. I assume That's, that that, oh, that is a hands-on oh, yeah. kind of thing. It's not tools. Yeah, it, she it, doesn't need tools. It's just like a, a slow drag of a finger down the back and then peeling. Yeah. That's yeah. delicious. Ugh. You and I have very different ideas of delicious. <laughs> All right. Uh, so let's also finally get into one plot hook or side quest, maybe for a one shot or your main story arc, either one. So again, going first, I really, really like the idea of the children are telling you about this wonderful lady outside of town. Every time they have a problem, they go to her because she has the answers. She gets them what they need. They she She's always really helpful to them. And she never really acquires much in return. She just enjoys having them around. But whenever you've got a problem, this is the lady you go to. Mm. And you go out of, out of town. You go to go find her lair. And as you get closer, the fog starts to roll in. Everything starts to darken. 
You have and, an encounter or two with some with like a straight ogre. Yeah, exactly. And then all of a sudden you're in her lair and she has you where she wants you and she makes a deal with you because she's helpful. She still comes across as helpful by the time you get to her, right? Everything around her is weird, but you get to her and she's oddly sweet and charming and is willing to... Oh, you need a hand? Sure, no problem. I just need something in return. Mm -hmm. And now you've got your players where you need them. Something seemingly innocuous, but is going to end up costing somebody greatly. Do Anis Hag's layers have regional effects? They can. I mean, obviously they can, but like, so I'm looking at Volos right now and I see that they have regional effects around their layers. Every one of the Hags does except the Dusk Hag, just because the Dusk Hag came in a later book. So yeah. they didn't mm -hmm. get that. But there are some things like gravel stones on a safe looking path, road or trails occasionally become sharp for 100 foot intervals, stuff like that. Um, strange laughter sounding like that of children or the Hag herself occasionally pierces the silence. That kind of shit. It's clear to me that fog should be one of these things. Yes. Absolutely. It doesn't actually have that as one of them. It's avalanches or or small little um, cairns appear along the route of travelers, containing anything from mysterious bones to nothing at all, which is bullshit. It should, there should be something. There should be there. something. But fog should be the thing. Here's my idea. Here's my plot hook. Every eight years, the hag comes back, and it's because the lair moves. Oh, okay. And oh. it's on a, a trek, and she just moves across the countryside, but there are these signs, these regional effects that pop up first, and they know that she's coming. When the thick fog comes in, every child that is eight years old will be taken. Hmm. So these kids are known, they're considered to be cursed the moment they're born because the villagers can do the math. So the moment they're born, they go, well, I'm not even going to bother to teach this child. Why would I bother to love this kid? Jeez. Oh, wow. Right? And yeah. so the orphanage is full of eight-year-old children. And all the other kids are fine, but the eight-year-olds don't get to play. There are no 16-year-old children. Not this year. There's just a gap every yeah. eight and years. And so, so this is it. The fog starts to roll in, or we start to hear the laughter again, and then... We know that on this specific day, during the harvest season, this is coming in, maybe it's uh, when there's a new moon, so it's particularly dark, we need to get um, these these adventurers in to protect us because we couldn't help it. We did love our child. Yeah. Right? Yeah. We wanted to save them. Cool. Dan? So for me, with when it comes to the Anis Hag, um, they are one of those uh, types of hag that we see sometimes in folklore as well. Um, and it's always kind of got this boogeyman feel to them. Um, having that uh, whispered token that they have, that iron token that they have, uh, play into this boogeyman thing where there is, um, like, I, I'm feeding off this every eight years thing, Adam. I was just going to say at random intervals, you know, certain houses will just get a iron token placed on their door and everyone in that village knows now this house is marked. Right. And no matter sure. what they try to do, that token just does not they can't get rid of that token. And it, and it pops up in the weirdest places. Like uh, I think inside it, of their drawers in their bedroom. No, it always in, pops up in the crib of the newborn. Or or that, yeah. Mm. Right. Um, so it it these people have this superstition of this um There's no iron anywhere in the town, and yet yeah. these bobbles keep popping. Right. Up. Exactly. Right. And and really play into that. And you could 
do multi-session arc just trying to figure out what the fuck is going on. Oh my god, the only iron in the town is a huge effigy in the middle. It is just one large tree with all of these tokens hanging from it for the past 300 years, marking the memory of every child that was taken. Oh, yeah. that's well, great. As we mentioned, right, the hag can make those inert at any point, so the... Yeah, the, well, when, the tokens when themselves now they've lost their power. Once the child's taken or whatever it is, yeah, right, they're they're inert, uh, but they don't. You're like you said, it's a memorial. I don't. In the I, I, town. I don't even think they're inert. She's still listening and talking to she, anyone who touches the tree. Uh, I would I would give her to that too, but just the tree in in and of itself. Yeah. Um, because you can only have a certain amount of them by the by the rules. You can yeah. Only have well, how many how many kids are there in a village of four hundred people that are all born on the same year? Right. Yeah. Like you get two or three. Every eight years, right? Uh, well, you're probably talking a farming village, so there's probably, like, people are having kids. Yeah, yeah. multiple but, kids. You know, every eight years, exactly, 13 children are born. Hmm, play with the numbers again. <laughs> yeah, 13 children are born and eight of them will disappear. Oh, <laughs> uh, and then... Or three, keep it with the token, right? Every year, oh, three yeah. of them disappear. Or, or every 13 years, 13 children. Like, you can... You can mm. theme it that way yeah. just to really give that. Remember the Fae, like, they, what was it? Three, three eight, eight 13, and then 13, 13 is just. They like seven as well, but yeah. that's more a Sealy thing and not associated to hags. Yeah. No, threes and eights for your hags, and then 13 just because it's unlucky. Yeah. Okay, so my favorite hag of all is the Dusk Hag, and I don't have a reason for that. I just got a weird, a weird preference for them. These are the ones that are from Eberron. Rising from the Last War. They're the newest hag of 5th edition. And you always know you're dealing with the Dusk Hag because they have orange skin. And very few things in 5th edition have orange skin. Right? Hobgoblins can, mm-hmm. but I can't think of anything yeah. else. Really. The, 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 I guess they're more yellowish. Yeah, yellowish. The odd fairy dragon yeah. way through. Like, mm-hmm. there's not a whole lot with orange skin. Tabaxi. No, that's fur. Uh, <laughs> they have unkempt hair, ram horns, long, sharp nails and teeth, and glowing red eyes that burn like embers, it says right in the book. Cool. When I saw your notes, I thought it said unkempt armpit hair, and now that's what I'm picturing. Oh, why not? Uh, okay, sure. Like long... No, I would say that that's probably braided. Oh, there you go. <laughs> so these guys are all about... Nice French braid. All about dreams, Okay. They see visions of the future in their own dreams and they can enter the dreams of others and manipulate them, turning them into nightmares. Some desperate people actually approach them for prophecies about the future because their prophecies come true. Dusk hags are neutral evil though. So they like to twist and warp people's fortunes and set them up for failure, oftentimes making the um, the prophecy come true just by uttering it out loud in the first place. Cool. Like, for example, you will die from falling. The only way for you not to do that is to climb that mountain and get the thing at the top. Right. So so you actually get a D10 table where uh, it gives you different hag prophecies. Do each one of you guys want to roll on? Sure. I got a, I got a four. All right. And Brad got a five. So um, for you, Dan, your prophecy is doom falls on the peacock and the sparrow alike. It's best to be a raven. What? And, Brad, yours is a white hand on a black field holds the golden key. Ooh. <laughs> All right. So, these are the weird cryptic prophecies. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, we've talked about prophecies in the past. They should never be really easy to understand at face value. Yeah. yeah. But, I, like, let's take a second and uh, and look at exactly what they are based on a stat block, okay? 
CR6, again, they're mm-hmm. medium fey, again. Uh, AC is 17, they have 15 D8 plus 15 hit points, which means that they're sitting at about a level 15 monk as sure. far as hit points go. Uh, they got good decks and slightly above average strength and con, but all their mental stats get a plus three or four. They also get intelligent and wisdom saving throws, a plus six, and big bonuses to deception, insight, and perception. She's immune to being blinded, charmed, or frightened. Blinded, I thought, was weird, but then remember, she's got these glowing ember eyes. Yeah. And she also has blind sight up to 60 feet and a passive perception of 16. I think that her eyes are magical, mm-hmm. and these should be quest items. Cool. Ooh. Yeah. She speaks common, giant, and infernal. She's got magic resistance, and she's an innate spellcaster with a DC 15 spell save. At will, she can cast Detect Magic and Disguise Self, which is pretty on par mm-hmm. for a hag. Three times a day, she gets to cast Dream, Hypnotic Pattern, and Sleep. But her sleep spell is 98, right? So when you That's- roll that... That's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot. Well, it guarantees that you're going to knock out one or two level six party members. Yeah. And then once per day, she gets legend lore because she listens to the podcast or scrying. <laughs> She's got a claw attack that does 1d6 plus two slashing damage, but who gives a shit because her multi-attack is specifically two of the nightmare touch attacks. These have plus seven to hit, five foot reach, and do 4d6 plus 4 psychic damage. Remember, she does this twice in a round. Mm-hmm. If the target is unconscious, they take an extra 3d6 psychic damage and become cursed. So, you knock down that death save. Yeah. Right? Oh, if no, it's zero. not just that. It's also but if a sleep. If they're asleep, yeah. you do a shit ton of damage. Probably. Isn't that a, it, if you're unconscious, don't you auto-crit? So, unconscious is when uh, they are incapacitated. They can't move or speak, and they're unaware of their surroundings. Uh, and creature that's unconscious drops whatever it's holding and falls prone. And a creature automatically fails strength and deck saving throws. Attack rolls against it have advantage, and anything that hits auto crits. So, so this says that it's four d six plus four with an extra three d six. But what they were really saying is that it's fourteen d six plus three plus plus, plus four. four or plus yeah. four. Yeah. So. On top of that, you get cursed. And the curse lasts until it is removed or until the Dusk Hag dies. The curse decreases the creature's maximum hit points by 1d10 at the end of every long rest. And I couldn't figure out why until I thought about dreams again. And this is night terrors waking you up. So mm-hmm. you didn't get enough rest. Yeah. And this is the curse. I'm so almost surprised a- it doesn't just give you like fatigue at the end of every well you have a choice do you take the maximum hit points or do you stay awake and take that next level of exhaustion so cr6 and this is going to be something that the dusk hag knows so she is going to hit and fade away Mm. and just wait for you to be so vulnerable that she's going to be able to hit again and all you have to do is say i'm going to stay up for three days and then and I, I'm not going to be able to, you know, I'm going to rely on a crossbow. I'm not getting into combat now. Yeah. And then she's going to come in and hit the next player. When she gets three or four player characters that are hit by this, she's going to be laughing. Mm-hmm. And she's also going to know who can remove the curse. And she'll be two steps ahead of you. Because half of you guys are moving at half speed. I think she, we're really, really hitting home at the point that hags are under yard. Yeah, Absolutely. The, Especially because she also gets a reaction. Oh, what's that? It's called Dream Eater. If an unconscious creature that the hag can see regains consciousness, 
She forces him to make a DC 15 wisdom save, and on a failure, the creature takes 2d10 psychic damage, and the hag regains that many hit points. Party on, Garth. Sorry, you say Dream Eater, I think of Wayne, Wayne's World. <sighs> all right, Dan. All right. So, this is clearly all about dropping players to zero hit points or hitting yeah. them with that sleep. Oh, yeah. So, this is a creature that may be CR6 and may actually be hitting outside and above that CR rating. Yeah. But I'm going to throw it a level four party because I want to hit them all with this shit. I'm going to hit them. I'm going to hit them hard. They're going to be on a quest to save their own lives within a certain number of days. And then by level six, they'll come back for revenge and have to go through the shit again. Right. But this is going to be a multi-level problem. Yeah. Yeah. Fair absolutely. Enough. All right. So with all that information based on these hags, I got a few questions for you. Let's roll to see. Initiative. I got an eight. Five. I got an eight too. You guys get to roll off. Fourteen. I got a four. All My right. four's got a one in front of it. That means I go first. Okay. Well, then go. Brad. All right, Dan. So... So, Dan, what are some environmental or social encounters that you would run with a dusk hag? Uh, I mean, everything is dreams with these guys. So, you never encounter a dusk hag in person, in my mind. I think you're more interacting with the dusk hag through the sleeping uh, form of an NPC, right? It's got that exorcist moment where it's just an otherworldly voice is coming out of one of the children in town that has been cursed by this thing, right? Um, I, I I really love that idea for an encounter with the dusk hag that way, right? And everything is cryptic and weird and uh, otherworldly and very, very, very malevolent. Hmm. I'm going to take it a step further. I think that she's going to directly interact with the cleric and the warlock and the barbarian who is superstitious. Yeah. Mm. But yeah. also specifically uh, orcs as well and half orcs because they've got weird superstition as well and you're not going to get any help from the nearby village because they've all been dreaming about you for the last three weeks they know you're coming and they know you bring doom <laughs> and this is just the dusk hag setting that idea in their minds cool I like poison it. them against you before you even arrive i like it yeah i'm picturing in the town there's this seer that everyone goes to because they have dreams and visions and they can predict the future. So the hag doesn't actually enter people's dreams directly except for this one townsperson. This one seer in town. Okay. She gives them the dreams and the visions and people come to them she's, to so get she's these got prophecies. a proxy. Exactly. Cool. But the proxy doesn't know that they're the proxy either. <laughs> the they proxy just, thinks they're the shit. They're just like, man, I see things. I see the future. Oh, no. Oh, no, they see horrors. This is a nightmare that this person. <laughs> it's Pandora. Yeah, yeah. The, this person, like, they want anything to do to be rid of these dreams that the people have gone so reliant on them as the seer of the village that they don't listen to what they have to say. So you come into town fresh faces, you bump into the seer and they say, I need you to help me. <laughs> I do, I'm having these visions. I don't know what's causing these visions, but I want them to stop. Hey, or, hey, or, or, hold on. Just before we go any further with this, why do hags always become females when they disguise self? They don't have to. They don't have they to. They don't have to, but we always just assume they're going to. If you really want to disguise your hag... Make it a man. Yeah. Yeah. You oh, yeah. point. Oh, yeah. Even your veteran players will not see that. Yeah. 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 And we tend to make them humanoid as well. Make them something Well, else. disguise self has to be humanoid. Oh, I get... Sorry. Not human. Sorry. Human or elf. Like, make it no. something a little more foreign. All right. So, second question for you, Dan. What are your battle tactics as a DM 
when you're using the dust peg. <laughs> Knock that guy out, murder him. Knock that guy out, murder him. There's your instant critting with 14d6. Yeah, fuck it. All right, cool. Yeah, I'm gonna use that. You know what? I'm not though. I'm gonna cast sleep on everybody. I'm going to wait till the elf has been separated from the party, and then I'm going to strike. As a dusk keg, I am not going anywhere near the elf until they are alone. And then yeah. I'll take them on one at a yeah. time. Because that immune to sleep thing would just piss me oh, right, right yeah. off. Absolutely. Yeah, it would drive me nuts. I'm actually imagining that as a dusk keg, uh, because it's so easy to achieve a TPK with a dusk keg, if the party's not prepared, they don't know what to expect, I'm actually going to use my dusk keg to knock people down, to get this fatigue on them, to lose these maximum hit points until they're willing to make a deal. I'm using combat as a way to make a deal rather than a way to kill the party. The other thing too is if you accidentally kill them, this is one of the only times where it's okay and it's built right in to say this was a dream. Yes. And then set up the exact same scenario. And they have a chance to redo it. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not using combat to kill the players with a dusk keg. Yeah, don't end it with the play like don't end the session with the players' deaths and saying, This was just a dream. Don't end it. No, no, it no, no. that's the beginning of the session. Yeah. The end of the session is them getting they to died. try to redo it. <laughs> yeah. You have a four hour session. By end of hour one, everyone's dead and miserable. And then at start of hour two, it's now you have three yeah. hours. All right, everybody, so. take a bathroom break. We're gonna come back. And yeah. I need to gather my notes. Oh, I, I wouldn't even do that. I would, I would, I would definitely want to project that this was to plan the entire time. Yeah. Because the second you start Bob Newharding the shit out of this, you start having issues. Mm. There's a deep cut, but I, I, I approve. All right. So we've covered battle tactics. We covered environmental. Let's lastly, Dan, one plot hook for, or a side quest. You mentioned that, uh, and you sent my brain going. You mentioned that uh, the entire town has been like tormented by uh, nightmares and. Like, they are constantly being watched in their dream states. So, I want a town that actively avoids your party because they've been warned of you and, and any interactions with the party will be met with sure death, right? Um, but I want your party to have to go through the town and find little clues that the villagers have left for your party to solve the dusk egg issue. They're trying to do it covertly and and with like little like dropped notes or a pebble in a certain way or like these little signs that your druid might pick up on or your rogue might pick up on and that I, all lead towards the dusk hang. yeah but but every time that someone does that you then find that npc's broken corpse yeah in a back alley yeah or like splayed across the well in the center of town and right? everyone's blaming you for it yeah because like, you're the ones who find the body how yeah. convenient yeah, well, I don't even think it's that. I think every single villager knows your party's there to help them, but they have to act in such a way that, like, tries to push your party away while, like, still, like, pleading with their eyes. I don't think, I don't think all like, of them. I think half of them don't. I think half, I, like, some of them are desperate enough to want your help, but the others are legitimately fearful. Yeah, yeah. okay. Right? So that you are dealing with the pitchforks and torches yeah. while mm -hmm. you're also trying to, like, some people are trying to save you. Who is brave enough? decide with you to protect you from the mob yeah it's it's you get approached by all the high wisdom but all the low wisdom guys are like fuck you guys right so okay i don't have plot hook i wanted to ask you guys instead we don't get a layer or regional effects for these guys do you have any thoughts about what kind of layers they would have oh hallucinatory terrain 
Clearly, yes. Yeah. That would absolutely yeah. 100% be one of them. Yeah, like you are seeing stuff out of the corner of your eye that just defies logic and reason, mm. right? And it's constantly shifting. And it's constantly shifting, right? And and like, I I'm going Alice like, in Wonderland level of bullshit for this. I like an abandoned wizard tower. Yeah. Yeah. There are some creatures that are called quarry that are in Eberron, and they are mm. dream monsters, essentially. Um, they're aberrations that come from the dream plane. I like the idea of you being able to summon one of these as a dusk egg. It'll last for one round and is gone again. Mm. Right? The same way that sometimes with the elemental layers, you get, oh, they, the sea hag can get the uh, the water elemental for one round and then it disappears. Shit like that. Yeah. So I really want to lean into that feature. So when it comes to the idea of plot hooks and whatnot, my big plot hook is going to be you having to deal with this kind of fucky terrain, this kind of, like, you don't know what to expect. Everything feels a little bit, like, man, I love giving dreams to players in the first place, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So having callbacks to dreams, that Dusk Hag could be looking in on all of these dreams or manipulating them from day one. And then to have it all come together where you've been dreaming about a red tower with an evil whatever in it for the last three weeks. And then you see the red tower. It means nothing. It's just supposed to distract you while the dusk hag gets away. It's a red tower instead of a red herring? Sure. All right. Um, I really like the concept. I'm going to go a little bit further into it. We were talking, I was talking earlier about, sorry, I've already mentioned that the seer in town. I want to play with that some more with just one person having visions. And this is going to be for a one shot where your players are all coming into this brand new town. They get pulled aside by someone saying, there's somebody in my head. I can't get them out. Help me. And you start to go down the road. We talked a little bit about uh, their lair or regional effects. I'm picturing as you walk down the road towards this abandoned wizard tower, whatever it may be, the road shifts. You've walked down and all of a sudden the road behind you is not the road that you just walked on. That's a hallucinatory. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. like it, it's a maze, right? Oh yeah, I like that. And so as you, and then you have the same wizard tower shenanigans as well, right? Every floor is different. You're basically running a mage tower, but when they get to the top, instead of a mad wizard, they're finding this dusk hag. And, and it's not even at the top, right? Like, oh yeah. When they finally defeat the hag, they realize they're in that small ruined hut that they passed on the road as they're walking into town. Yeah. I also like the idea of the fact that it's always dusk or twilight within the regional effect. Yes. Like even if, if so. it's daylight and you've been walking, you woke up three hours ago and in the morning and you get within a certain certain um, distance from the lair, suddenly the sun just speeds up and goes down to being just on the horizon. Mm-hmm. And that's where the dusk hag gets her name. Yes. No, I like it. So... If you like it, like Brad does, you can reach out and talk to us on Instagram, Facebook, or at r slash It's a Mimic on Reddit. Of course, you can reach out and talk to us through info at itsamimic.com, where we're always accepting mailbag questions. Uh, We also get a handful of requests about shit we've talked about on the podcast and whatnot for clarification. Um, So follow, like, subscribe, all that stuff. Of course, we always talk about how we're on YouTube. I do check the YouTube comments on there. Most of you are very nice and we like you. Some of you are just bad, bad people. Sorry. Is it just you trolling me over and over every time? <laughs> Dan right? needs some sort of outlet. The anonymity, the anonymity of the internet is a beautiful thing. <laughs> All right. We've got one more. Is that where we're going to fucking end that? Okay. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. yeah, absolutely. We've got one last hag to cover today, and that's the Ver hag. Now, 
I've been told by Dan and Adam because Dan being the Celtic fan that he is and Dan or Adam liking to get things correct that it's pronounced ver. It's spelled B-H-E-U-R. Yeah, I like I want to call it the Burhag because it is based in the frozen tundra and frozen mountains. It's and, the Burhag. And they go Burr oh, fuck yeah. you. No, it's the Burhag. No. I, I will pull out the fucking authority part of this fucking podcast. Uh, no. Did you say authority fart? Okay, all right, listen. The podcast is now over because Dan is correcting someone else on how to pronounce something. So we've... Well, we had a good run. Yeah, it's, it's all been good. Thanks, Thanks very for much listening. for listening. You can, good night. You can still send me money at <laughs> Anyways, had you not told me that about all the Gaelic stuff, I would have pronounced it Burgess by default. And then I read what it was and then I laughed. Yeah. So, Burhags make, I'm going to say Burhags now, Verhags make their homes in the cold and the snow, generally found in Arctic or mountainous environments. Their appearance is much like that of a white walker from Game of Thrones, if you're trying to picture something in your mind. Bluish white skin, gaunt, and covered in frostbitten-like flesh. Their hair is stark white and generally quite thin, and in their hand will be a staff that is twisted, bent, and gnarled. This staff is called a gray staff that can be used as a flying vehicle, and can also carry additional magic within it. Dan cannot stop can laughing. He's covering his face. Do you need some help, Dan? What, what do you want to say? Staff, the, the gnarled, bent, gray staff in their hand. Continue. Children. Much like their environment, Verhags are merciless and relentless and care very little for the well-being of others. They will devour you and destroy you, given the chance. They delight in cold, calculated murderers and the cold heart of a selfish creature. They delight even further in crimes committed for no purpose other than personal gain. They delight in the suffering of mortals and enjoy watching them be consumed and devoured by the cold. Cool. Verhags are unrelenting. Should you be taken down by a Verhag, she will immediately feed on your corpse, tearing you apart limb from limb. Verhags come with a CR of 7, so the most powerful of the three that we've discussed today. Yep. An AC of 17 and 14d8 plus 28 hit points for an average of 91. They are immune to cold damage, have dark vision up to 60 feet, and speak Orin, common, and giant. Orin is an interesting one. Yeah, that's the lang- That's the primordial Bur- dialect yeah. of air. Well, I, I figure because they're so closely the tied with winds. the cold. And, yeah. Cold yeah. winds blow, right? Yeah. yeah. It was just, it was really interesting. You don't see that very often. Yeah. Normally they have like sylvan or some sort of fey language. Mm-hmm. These guys seem more elemental. Elemental, yeah. definitely. We'll get into some of that elementalness as well. So, they, as for their stat line, their primary stats are Dex and Charisma, with Khan being close behind. The rest of the stats are all okay as well, with all with modif- The rest of their stats are all okay as well, with positive modifiers across the board. Verhags have the ability to walk on ice, including climbing up vertical surfaces, with no ability check required, and ice and snow are not considered difficult terrain like they are for your standard creatures. They have innate spellcasting, which allows them to cast Hold Person at Will, Cone of Cold three times a day, and Control Weather once per day. Their Gray Staff also gives them access to Ray of Frost, Ice Storm, and Wall of Ice. Should they lose the Staff, or if it is broken, they will be unable to cast these three spells, and it will take them a year plus a day to create a new one. Cool. So, if you want to get the upper hand on Verheg, destroy that Staff. Or take it. Yeah, I'm thinking take it, but then, then she's hunting you the fuck down. Because this yeah. is a big commitment of time. I mean, they're immortal, but it's a big commitment of time to, to build a new one. I would make it cursed, though, where you are suddenly amoral. Because mm-hmm. that's what she's all about, right? Yes. Is, is yeah. 
amoral murder just for personal gain and just yeah the murdery hobo she is the murder hobo absolutely so i would just lean in that direction and say you are cursed this is the thing i'd slip that piece of paper over to the player so that they know and everybody else just watches the slow corruption and i would be giving this to the druid probably would be the character i'd be giving it to anybody with the staff anybody would but any spellcaster i I give it to the polearm wielding barbarian (laughs) she's like Alright. For physical attacks, the Verheg can slam, which is a melee weapon attack dealing 2d8 plus 1 bludgeoning damage and an additional 1d6 cold damage. Does she slam with her gnarled staff? You absolutely bet she does. Come on and slam, and welcome to Japan. (laughs) Anyways, it's not Japan. It's the jam. Welcome to the jam. What is the movie called? Space Japan? Yeah. Oh, that's a different movie I, I watch with animated characters. No, you're, no, okay. no, you're, you're <laughs> cut off. Should someone go down in combat, as I mentioned earlier, the Verheg will feast on the corpse for going any other attacks or any other targets. Any creature within 60 feet of the Hag must make a wisdom saving throw or be frightened for a minute. Whilst frightened, you are incapacitated, you cannot read, write, or understand speech, and you can only speak in incoherent nonsense. Okay. This, this is basically insanity, is what it is. You go insane watching this happen. So, Olin, this is people that watch her feast? Correct. Anybody wa- witnessing her feasting. All right, so someone goes down unconscious. She starts taking bites out of them. Yes, the rest of your party has to make wisdom saving throws, and should they fail, they're going to become incapacitated. It doesn't talk about any damage done by the bites. Yeah, it was an interesting thing I noticed in the stat block. It seems to be missing a bite attack. Well, I'm going to give her a 1d4. I'm just going to use yeah. the slam stats, but 1d4 piercing damage. She, which, but, I mean, you've gone down. I was so going to say, the way I understood, that's the way I looked lose, at it as well. You're losing one yeah. death save. Yeah, you're I failing the death save automatically. Honestly, the damage I, doesn't matter. Yeah, I, exactly. The damage doesn't matter with it, so I, I could see why they... She's but, a biter. She uses teeth. It's 1d4. Like, yeah. a, if for some reason you're able to incapacitate your tire wrists together, she's going to bite. She's a biter. That's yeah. a thing. Yeah, okay. I mean, the slam is going to be her primary attack, but yeah, she will use her teeth. Also, based on the arms, which are like the art, her arms are like long, they're seven feet long with huge claws. She doesn't get a claw attack. Yeah. This one feels a little disjointed. (laughs) I I think, I think it's really in uh, trying to focus on the frail winter witch aspect and like the, the spindly nature. She doesn't have like the, a lot of the other hags have like disjointed jaws if they have a bite attack. Like if you look at the, um, the Anis Hag, it's got this kind of weird, elongated smile to it and gets a bite attack. Have you seen the art? The Verhag has a rictus grin with the pointy jaw. Like, she's got the yeah. squarest jaw. Like, she absolutely... I Sure. I, she's burying her razor-sharp teeth in the art. Yeah, I, I just... I really do feel like it this... feels almost like an oversight. Yeah, there are... I'm not going to use anything except the slam because it's going to do the yeah. most damage. I'm going to focus on this feast thing because it's going to incapacitate and fuck up the rest of the party. But I feel like there should be claws and bites too just because you end up in a lot of social encounters and not just combat mm-hmm. attacks. Yeah. I want more options. Yeah. So basically what we're saying is you got to homebrew it if you end up in that situation. Yeah. I don't think you have to look very far. Though. No, but it's very simple. bite and claw attacks all over the monster manual. Yeah. You just got to take it from other places. 1d4 piercing for a bite and 1d6 slashing for a claw. There we go. There you go. Sure. Perfect. Now, one more fun addition to the fear effect is that your movement now becomes controlled by the DM and is erratic during the effect of this 
during the time you're under the effect of the fear. So the DM gets to control how you move, where you move, but it should be erratic. And you can't communicate. And you can't communicate. You are just running around mad. You've lost your mind witnessing. So I'm very tempted to just run you off a cliff. But, it says erratic. But it says erratic. So my idea here is that I would roll... Let's say Dan's character is facing this thing, right? And he's failed now because he's seen it. I'm going to roll 2d8. He's going to move half his movement in whatever direction because you have eight eight mm -hmm. directions around yep. you on a grid, right? So I'm going to roll one. So let's say I roll a three. He's moving one, two, three, kind that of way. back in a directional for half his movement. And then going to roll the other one will be a, an eight and he's going to move in that direction again. Sure. So just to be able to keep it fresh and interesting where I am not purposefully going out of my way to run you off a cliff yeah. or to put you necessarily closer or further away from harm. But it could, the dice might decide that that's the way you go. It might. And remember, you will incur opportunity attacks. Yeah. Well, also, it's still frightened, so you cannot move willingly closer to the uh, to the verhick. Uh, yeah. But it's not willing. But it's not willing. That's the thing here, right? It's maddening. You're mad, well, no, right? You're not no. choosing. You're just running in circles, like just freaking out. So I would say even if you do move closer to the verhag, it's not intentional enough that I would allow it as a DM. I, yeah, I, I don't think it's I don't think it's a straight like madness necessary. Like I don't think this is a uh, complete disjointing of your mind. I think it's such a scary sight that you have to get away. That er movement is erratic, but it's still away from the verhag. I mean, it's called maddening feast. Like the effect is supposed to be that resembling madness. True, but. It, it, the, the thing is, it says, while frightened in this way. Yes. So that right there means that you have special rules. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I'm, I'm, and, I'm aware. And the yeah. other thing, too, to point out is that I have seen myself, when there's some sort of unexpected um, violence or, or horror that happens, most people flee. Some people run towards it just with the instinct to, oh, my God, I need to help. Oh, shit, what am I doing? Right? Mm -hmm. Like, Yeah, okay. So I... I don't think they're going to run right up and be like, what are you doing? <laughs> right? Yeah. But the movement may be... No, no, no. The spleen's over there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, when you do save against... Every turn you are mad and you will get another chance to make the save. And like all most fear effects, you will be immune for 24 hours once you pass the save. A grandmother verhag or a powerful auntie can also gain access to lair actions, allowing them to create a 40-foot high, 20-foot radius cylinder-sized blizzard wherever she can see within 120 feet of herself. Cool. The effects of this blizzard manifest as a light obscurance, and anyone who enters the blizzard or starts their turn in the blizzard is blinded for the rest of that round until the top There's of no next save. turn. There's no save. You just are. If you're in it, you're blinded. You're just Which makes sense, right? Because you're in the middle of a blizzard. You don't get to save against a blizzard. Well, I mean, fair. Uh, it's, it's, it's just there's no damage to it though. No, there? no, no, there's no damage. I just picture just it right. You're surrounded by snow, right? It's right here in your face. You just can't see. There's not really a save for that. Yeah, true sight's not going to help you when there's like literally just something in front of your yeah. eyes. Fair. Yeah. All right. So covering that, let's roll for initiative. Seventeen for Dan, Adam, and I. Yep. Okay, I Dan's five. going last. I'm going last. All right, Adam, you go first. Going first. What do you got for me? All right. What environmental or social encounter would you use with a Verheg? I mean, well, uh, I've done social for the other ones already. So clearly environmental is the answer mm -hmm. for Verhegs. I don't think you're having great big conversations with these guys. No. no. They're more hit and run. They're predator to prey, right? Yes. So, I mean, clearly the blizzard thing. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. absolutely. Like, for fuck's sakes, that's got to be a thing. Honestly, 
they're going to be the master of their environment. And because they can walk on ice, doesn't mean you can. Yeah. And it does not say can walk on thick ice. No. So I like the idea of her starting combat on thin ice with people. Mm -hmm. And as you fall prone, as you uh, have to... Every time that you steady yourself to take a swing, you can walk just fine at half movement. But if you run... You gotta now roll a deck save to not fall, and if you fall, the ice breaks, and now you're swimming. In, you're swimming. in cold water, in freezing water, right? Like, like yeah. I'm really gonna play with the environment to make this go from a CR seven to a CR nine encounter, just it, based on environment. It also specifically mentioned that you, she can climb ice walls with no check and no difficult terrain. So you could just literally see her plant her feet on the wall and walk straight up a cliffside. Mm -hmm. It is not outside of the realm of possibility with her that she would have a white dragon yes. companion, right? They are very much aligned, and white dragons are not, like, they're smart enough, mm -hmm. but they're not really smart enough to outwit a hag. No, so definitely not. I think they would have an agreement. Yes. You know, this is not a minion, this is a partner, but I can totally see that. So now you're also dealing with a white dragon lair, and so this shit just got real complicated. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, I'm next. You're next. <laughs> uh, I actually wanted to go with a bit more of a social encounter. We talked about how the she really enjoys the villainous sort of person, right? The person who takes advantage of the weak, who works for their own gains, and commits crimes in cold blood. If you've got a party of murder hobos, maybe you've got an evil aligned party member or party, she's going to be drawn to this, and she is going to try and make a deal to get basically use their evilness to her advantage. Maybe there's another hag in the in the area who is fighting for control over the region. She doesn't really want... Maybe she doesn't want to be part of a coven, but she wants this other hag taken care of. I can use these guys. That's your social encounter. For, for me, when it comes to these guys and the environment as well, the environment is... It lends itself to um, uh, cre uh, creepy tableaus, almost, right? So, like... You are walking through an ice cavern and there are creatures half-eaten frozen in the ice all around you as you're walking of various sizes, right? Like you got your woolly mammoth missing half a carcass or you have your uh, villager that has been missing for a while with like one arm sticking out of the um, ice and it's missing all of its fingers, right? And, like she's just combined like broken one off and not on it as she walked by. It's feet are up on the ceiling and you see this strange light sword in the snow underneath oh, it. Fuck, God, I knew you were going to go that way. No, but like I I, I really like having, um, if you're about to fight a Verhag, you are walking through this like almost uh, library of its deeds. Like it has worked this terrain around it uh, to show like these creatures that it has eaten it like as as a threat like we said before you know there's these warning symbols but this one she has very much put up there as a way of proudly uh, announcing her chaos to this area yeah she doesn't delight in the innocence like no she's not so much corrupting she's about destruction yeah right and she likes the wicked evil things so the only people she wants coming to her lair are people who are willing to stomach the stuff that is or victims or victims yeah right so uh, i i want to have like your party trying to sort its way through an ice tunnel to get to one of these things and the entire time she's uh harrying your party all right so let's get into some battle tactics for dms adam how okay. are you using these guys in combat well it's pretty straightforward how to use them in combat in my opinion i mean attack attack and then feast right like yeah. there we go 
However, I want to point out the idea of feasting. Um, I follow Nature's Metal on Reddit, mm -hmm. which I have seen some shit now. And I, I'm all for it. I think that's cool. Predators and prey are like, there's some fucked up stuff that happens in nature. She's feral and eats people, which means, and I'm just going to point this out, the reason you are being driven mad by this is because it's horrific. Yes. She's going for the soft parts. Mm -hmm. Eyes, throat, belly, like between the bottom of the rib cage and the middle of the thigh is feasting ground, right? This creature is taking chunks of flesh with her teeth. This has got to be just red spray in the snow. Yeah. And that, it, when I, as far as a battle tactic goes, this isn't really so much a tactic as it is I'm amping up the horror by describing exactly what it is mm. instead of just, and she takes a bite. She drops to her knees, digs those fingernails into the stomach and tears you it You see her open. jaw just end and just bury into the stomach. Cool. Yeah, so I'm really going... Use this on NPCs, right? This is your chance to get that. Well, if you get a player to die, oh, yeah. if you and get... particularly annoying bards, NPCs and particularly annoying bards. Guess like, what Dan is playing in my campaign right now? A particularly a annoying bard. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. I yeah, there's not a lot of variety in the combat for these things. I mean, it's like you said, it's pretty obvious. You want to take somebody down, and you want to feast on them. So my main tip for DMs: target the weakest creature because you want to get somebody down as quick as you can, so you can start that feasting. That's her most powerful mechanic. And that slam is nothing to sleep on either. I disagree. It is not her most powerful mechanic. That gray staff is a fucking beast. I'm using that, right? You're stuck in a blizzard and she's sitting in you with rays of frosts. She's she's changing your path with walls of ice, mm. right? She is doing... Kona Cold, by the way, is just a beautiful offensive spell. And she would be using this thing whenever she can. She is isolating you guys into little paths with the walls of ice and then conic holding you until you're down. The the wall of ice, too, is not meant to block you. It is meant to separate you. Yes. yes. So this should be between the players. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It, so there you go. Players, if you're going to fight a Verhag, especially in her own lair, clump up. She doesn't have a whole lot that's good. With exception of Kona Cold, that's the only area of effect thing she's going to be able to do, right? Yes, but it's not the only area. Like it, it, it's, it's a not, big it, area of effect. Like, yeah, 60-foot cone. And it's um, it packs such a massive punch. So, like, you want to clump up, but at the same time, don't clump up. Because now I she would, can hit the entire party. I would party. rather have the entire party moving at half speed down, t you know, 12 hit points then have that guy over there and that guy over there because that is how you pick off and get a TPK. Right. right. So, mm -hmm. like, so players, if you're fighting these guys, go for the staff. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Kick her right in the staff. Like, right over, break it right over your knee. It's good to take your year plus a day to put it back together. Uh-huh. All right. Lastly, one plot hook or side quests, be it a campaign or one shot. What are you doing, Adam? I mean, get the staff. Get yeah. The staff. Like, yeah. I don't have to go much much deeper than that. Like, get the staff. You could also start this off. Um, my plot hook would be, there were a bunch of explorers that went off over the mountain. They never came back. Please find them. And then you find them and they're half eaten. You're like, oh, it's a Donner Party kind of situation. Mm. No, no. No, no it's, it's not. It, it's a Verhag. That's, that's what you're dealing with here. Yeah. Yeah. So, Adam, you kind of triggered my thought pattern with the mention of the White Dragon. I'm going to actually be sending the party on a quest their whole plot line is there's a young white dragon in the area they need to take out. But on the way to the white dragon, they get waylaid by this Verhag. Or even better, they start to walk in. They start to see the 
uh, corpses. Everything's lining up for a white dragon lair. You come into this big open cave. There's a dragon, but it's sleeping quietly in the corner. And there's this old woman in the corner who you think you're about to try and set free and free from the dragon. And then all of a sudden you get close enough and in she goes for the kill. And you're into combat. The dragon awakens and now you're fighting both. I also like the idea, if you don't want to do a, a white dragon, like white dragons are mean enough, they're evil, she's going to like them. Yeah. yeah. Right? But if you if you don't want to do that, a um, abominable yeti. Yeah, sure. Instead yeah. of a troll, right? Absolutely. Like she could, there are all sorts of ice. All creatures. sorts of ice creatures, but yeah, that white dragon. There's some. I like that. We talked about them having kind of crazy mounts and vehicles and things like that. Mm-hmm. Dragons don't like to be used as such, but it could be that this Verheg was convincing enough to uh, have this be her little pet. I also like the idea that she's in a papoose on the back of a fucking abominable yeti. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, that's pretty cool. Uh, for me, I'm going with uh, what's the movie called? Twenty Eight Days of Night. Uh, Thirty Days of 30 Night. Thirty Days. Of Thirty Night. Night. Jesus Christ. Uh, Thirty Days of Night. Uh, and it is a North Arctic level uh, village that everyone stays indoors during that month of darkness. And mm. why? It's because you know the Verhag has decided to move into that area every winter, and anyone that steps outdoors has to get hunted. Right and you could play into the snow vampire thing like that movie is or snow zombie thing. Sure. I mean, have that aspect in it as well. That's metal as fuck and I love it. But like have the main antagonist for like a three, four session, um, but month long in game uh, campaign of just surviving in the Arctic with one of these things just on the periphery. Waiting for someone to step outside. That's kind of Rhyme of the Frost Maiden. Yeah. It kind of is, yeah. Uh, look, I'm not saying that's a bad idea. I'm just saying that if you really want to make it unique, you also give them a doppelganger and a mimic that are also <laughs> hunting them indoors. And so you've got the thing. Yeah, oh, I was yeah. Just, that's where I was going next. That was the thing that cool. triggered me as well. All right. So all I covered, final thoughts from everyone. What do you think of these three hags that we discussed today? I don't know which one is my favorite. I really don't. They each have a unique place for me. Um, I love the Anis Hag as being just so vicious and violent mm-hmm. and being able to be anywhere. A Verhag is limited by their, their yes. terrain, right? Yeah, yeah. So, mountains or Arctic circles. Or yeah, like, I feel the same way about giants. I love giants, but you're really not fucking around. Like, you're not really bumping into them outside of their favorite terrain. Yeah, sure. Yeah, and so that's kind of my complaint about elementals, the giants, mm-hmm. Verhag, Sea Hag again, yeah. right? So uh, that's why I like probably the Anis and the Dusk. Dusk is just more fucky. Yeah, Anis is horror. Dusk is is conniving dungeon master. Uh, see, I, 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 when it comes to the Dusk Hag and it comes to even the Verhag, I look at these guys and I go, they are less. I mean, the Verhag is more hag like. But like the dusk hag feels like it could just be a evil dream, any kind of dream eater, fiend, or... right? Like it feels very fiendish. Um, and like the the anis hag just feels like stereotypical. Like this is this is the haggy of hags, right? So, do you think they're the most stereotypical compared to the green hag or the night hag or the onk hag? I I I think uh, they are the hist. Historically stereotypical. I can't believe we just got away with that. Keep I going. Yeah. The what? The yeah. on keg. Oh. <laughs> you just threw those at me a couple weeks ago. This is how of I know Dan does not fucking listen to me. Yeah. <laughs> but like I, I do. I honestly think that they are 
um, one of the more stereotypical versions of hags that you get. They're big, they're powerful, they they manipulate, and they're all about chowing down on children flesh. So like it 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 really feeds into that uh, um, hag feel. Whereas both the dusk hag and the ver hag feel very much like they're out there threats. They don't come here. They're out there threats, right? So I I, I, I don't know. I, I, I like the Anis Hag. I like the Dusk Hag as well. Just it feels a little bit more fiendy than Haggy. The, the thing I like about the Dusk Hag is that the Dusk Hag is really the only one that I think can operate in an urban setting. Out yes. of all of the Hags. I, mm, yeah, okay. Because they operate primarily in the shadows. I, I could get like a Night Hag operating within a village, but the Dusk Hag could be in, in Neverwinter could be in Oh, not even Neverwinter like you go right into the water deep. Like yeah. you are fucking with dreams and setting people up for failure. Where I would agree with you, I think you could do the same with Anis, yes. but have them as They're the town violent. No, use them as the town blacksmith. So now you're handing out a long sword made out of iron tokens to your party members. And the handle is wrapped in leather. And the handle's yeah, yeah. Yeah, just I, as an added flavor, just for me. I, that, that, that's just for me. <laughs> I feel like that is just going to... And Anna's Hag is not going to be able to hold back for long periods of time in an urban setting. Well, it doesn't have to hold back for long periods of time in an urban setting. This is the new blacksmith. The last one died under mysterious circumstances, and this one has since come in and done a wonderful job. Also, eight feet tall kinds of, kind of gives it away a little not bit. Not when they're but they shape-changed. Shape-shift. Right, they can go down to a medium-sized creature as part of their shapeshift. Yeah, it's said specifically in these. So, like, uh, I, you're right. Dusk hags in the urban setting is is they're definitely the more they lean more to that. Anis hags is like the local tradesperson. I just feel like you're going to have the one-off Anis hag. You could have a coven of dusk hags yes, move could. in for generations. Yes, fair enough. Yeah, the Anis hag, you're almost getting more of your um, demon barber vibe from the Anis hag in an urban setting. Yeah, yeah. So, that's all for this part of our discussion on hags. The next time we circle back to hags, we're going to look at some of the biggest and baddest ones out there. So subscribe or follow and check back regularly to see what inspirations and insights we'll have for you in the future. Next week, we'll be sitting down to go over how to read stat blocks and the changes in how Wizards of the Coast are designing them now. Thanks for listening to another episode of the It's a Mimic podcast. If you'd like to support us, we have a donate button on our website at www.itsamimic.com as well as a store for some awesome merch. We also rely on word of mouth to get news of the podcast out there to the community. So please pass the word to everyone you know that we're available on iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube, as well as most podcast apps. Thanks again for listening to It's a Mimic, where you never know what you're going to get. Thank you for listening to another It's a Mimic production. Inquiries, shoutouts, requests, and mailbag questions can be sent to info at itsamimic.com. Do you guys know anything about the daughters of Sorakel? No. No, not a thing. Okay, so you clearly didn't listen to the fucking Turning the Multiverse series? Definitely didn't. I mean, yeah, definitely did. So I'm going to send Dave after both of you. I spent all my time editing. No, you don't. <laughs> I did then. Yeah, 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 yeah <laughs> that's true. So the daughters of Sorakel um, are very, very infamous. Let's, let's put it that way. Um, when you play in an Eberron campaign... You have some named bad guys, but they're all like stuck down in the abyss or, or their version of like the, the underworld and the afterlife. Or it's a, an evil king over here. These are legitimate villains that are, they sit happily in the gray area. 
But they're the daughters of Sorakel, and Sorakel is barely mentioned in Eberron Rising from the Last War. What we do know about her with a quick Google search is that she is an infamous night hag who was one of the very first fiends in Kyber, which is that the afterlife underworld. Where all right? the crystals come from. No, different kind of Kyber. No, there are straight up Kyber crystal dragon shards. So that is... Do they make light swords out of them? Kyber crystals are Star Wars. I know they Fiends. are. This is like the third <laughs> fucking Star Wars reference this episode. And I can go for 15 episodes at a time <laughs> without listening to that bullshit series. So, <laughs> fuck Star Wars. In it's a time, Dave's going to kill me. I'm going to keep comments sent to <laughs> go to Go to the Reddit at It's a Minute. Yeah. So, um, the thing about Sora Kel is that she deals with the big picture. Her motivations are beyond what anyone really understands. And she's known for being a big fan of plane hopping. She's always moving among the different 13 planes of Eberron. But she hasn't been seen in Eberron for over 100 years and nobody knows why. Some people think that she's just watching and enjoying the show. Some people think that she's just gone. And some people think that she's trapped and unable to get free. Hmm. But she left behind three daughters. In Eberron, there's a country called Droam, which is like a haven for monsters. It's a whole country where all the monsters are brought together and function in its own society, even though it's made up of misfits and evil creatures. It has an economy, a workforce, and politics. Drome is run by the daughters of Sorakel, who are a coven that have built this country and the capital city called Crag, C-R-A-G, um, and, and they've done it all in their mother's absence. Their motivations are also unknown, but they tend to work in bizarre ways, and they govern strangely effectively. They also seem to be interested in keeping peace with all of the other countries for now. Much to the chagrin of the other countries, Drome is actually thriving because they've got this entire population with different skill sets that are able to make it um, bigger and better in ways that elves and humans can't even think about, right? Cool. When you have ogres and trolls as your construction crew, that's going to go faster than a bunch of dwarves. So there are the three daughters themselves that oversee the whole thing. And the main one that people are going to interact with is Sora Catra. So Sora seems to be the last name for all of them. So Sora Catra is a green hag. She's a spokesperson, strategist, and she is a genius. She is the mouthpiece for the entire country. And if there are any sort of public declarations or any sort of um, diplomatic uh, meetings or anything, it'll be with her specifically. She's often found with an entourage of trolls whom she like actually fucking loves. And you often don't even know you're dealing with her because she's an accomplished shapeshifter. So you got to look for the trolls. And that'll be the dead giveaway here. She almost never appears as herself. She appears as a young, beautiful woman. Her schemes are often incredibly complex. And she likes to reverse the tides of fortune at the last moment. She will often let the enemy win many, many battles just to win the war at the last moment. Or she will give you a gift, but beware, that gift is going to be your downfall. It will work for you over and over and over again until it suddenly fails you at just the key moment. Hmm. She's also starting to build a monstrous mafia in one of the other countries, but she's mostly known for her network of spies and her wealth of knowledge. So she knows everything going on in Corvair, which is the continent in Aberon. There's also Sora Mania. This is an Anis hag. She's strong, cruel, and she acts as the muscle of the three. She is your stereotypical Anis hag mm -hmm. for the mm -hmm. most part. Up until Drome was created, 
she was actually just out there in the Eldine Reaches, which is like a forested druidish area, where she was just out there wreaking fucking chaos. And then her sisters were like, no, come on, we've got this plan. We're going we're gonna to build a country. Come here. And so she agreed because this provides new opportunities for chaos. She's not famous for her intelligence. She's famous for her brutality. But she's still an accomplished liar and schemer. Although she does prefer battle and bloodshed. She's looking forward to an oncoming war. Because then she gets the most casualties. <laughs> she also has a taste for intelligent flesh and likes to trap the souls of her victims within their own skulls when they die. Cool. Wow. The last one is Sora Teresa, who is, in my opinion, the most interesting because she is a, an oracle. She's a diviner. She's an old dusk hag, and she's the oldest of all three of them. She's also blind. So she's the typical blind no, oracle. Yeah. Um, but she knows everything, almost like she's walking through fate that she has already seen and dreamed. Her advice and words are often the instigating factor in prophecies. For example, if you never meet her, you will live a happy life. If you meet her and ask for a prophecy, she will say, you are doomed to do this. And then that prophecy will kick in. So it's like she writes it as she goes. Mm. And then it comes true. Because she will set you off on a path because she knows what you're going to do with this information. Cool. So she's a dungeon master. She also keeps a ton of secrets from even her sisters and will even help her enemies for her own mysterious purposes. So there's clearly a huge grand scheme that nobody understands. She's also got a vast library in Drome that includes tomes of the lives of great heroes and historical figures. And I do mean the lives of, not the records or tales of them. Their actual lives, their life and essence has been captured by these tomes. And they are forced to relive it as you read the books. Whoa. Yeah. And remember, she's blind, so she can't read them. She, she just has them. <laughs> Interesting. Okay, so, that's I picture, awesome. I picture her, like, experiencing it almost, in a way. Yeah. When you think of Eberron, people always think of... And we kept saying steampunky bullshit. It isn't. It's magic punk. But, like, there's so many cool little details like this through Eberron. But the Daughters of Sorakel are one of my reasons that I love hags. Hmm. I fucking love hags. Because these three... I could build a dozen campaigns around them and the shit they're up to. Yeah. So, um, do you guys want to grab dice and roll? Did, like, what's one inspiration that you got from that? All right. It's a 19 for me and for Adam. I, I got just a 10. Keep roll us all day for you today, Adam. Yeah. 13. Two. You're all right. First. So, I'm going first. My favorite thing here is that they are building a country that is more successful than all the other countries. <laughs> that is intensely insane to me that they've got manticores that are like their air patrol. And you can... Warfare changes now. Absolutely. Because you have battalions of monsters working together. Except goblinoids. Yeah, I was about to say, you have like a bunch of really horny hobgoblins in this, in this kind of world. No, uh, the goblinoids have their own... Um, country Oops. that there are it's like fractured um, barbarian tribes that are all fighting with each other and also orcs are not a way that you remember orcs they're mm -hmm. their own unique thing but when it comes to every other kind of monstrous creature or monstrosity they're going to be in drone or they'll be out there the, the feral ones are still out in the world up to shit in the other countries but if they're in drone they're working together even oozes have their place in drone cool 
Oh, somebody's going to keep up the sewers and sanitary systems. Yeah, it's not just that. I mean, why dig when you can burn through it, right? Yeah, like, fair enough. There's a lot going on with, with Drome. And it's just, it's so much fun to think about how you would go up against a literal army of, just pick, pick any monstrosity, right? Yeah. And think about having to go up against an army of rust monsters. Rust monsters are, are the first wave in the battle. Yeah. And then you send in your ogres and trolls when the armor and weapons are useless for your enemies. So uh, cool. Ah, uh, it's just it's neat to think about how you can start hitting with those combos and waves of these creatures. Dan, you've seen me with did you see me put waves and waves of intellect devourers in? Yep. Yeah. Oh. So you can just imagine what these guys could do. That, that they're like sorry, they're aberrations. So it's not quite the same, but you can get up to some fucky shit. You really can. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned Sora Kotra being the spokesperson, the strategist, constantly yeah. shape-shifting. That was inspiring. It, at first, I was like, why is this coven working to unite all these other creatures? Because we typically think of them being master manipulators, right? They're usually kind of doing their own thing. They don't ally with other creatures so much as they either are subservient to you or something like that. But this is ultimately the most powerful coven in the fact that everybody is subservient and answers to them. Yeah, but it but, almost didn't line up for me at first. But now that I'm thinking about it, it's the ultimate coven to basically take these three hags and they rule over the country. Yeah. And the best thing about it is they're fulfilling their promises. Yep. Yeah. Like they're fulfilling their end. And they're not really making bargains from what I could tell in anything you described. Like they're still up they to are, shit because I mean, they've got like a hags, box of some mafia and they've got like. Yeah. Sure. But within their own country, they're not necessarily making deals with people to, uh, you know, discredit them or. No. Cause them trouble. They're actually using the like. Here's gold. They, go they, do this thing. Like I will they pay don't, you. They actually it. don't have to do that because yeah. they've got everybody already under their thumb. They don't have to go to their haggy ways. Uh, for me, it's these books, man. These books uh, that hold soul. Yeah. yeah, I knew your eyes lit up. Yeah, I, I was like, that. oh shit! The amount of things you could do with a library of like straight up, it's just the souls of the adventurers in the books. Mm -hmm. And as you flip to the pages, each page, like I want a couple of them to be self-aware as well. Like, it's not just the lives. It is a tortured soul within the pages of a book, right? And and have that be the Grand MacGuffin for your party or whatever it is, right? Like, uh, it doesn't even have to be that. Have that just be a magic item for one of your players. Have the book be your uh, player's patron. The book is the soul of an ancient adventurer or or something and then you have a uh, undying warlock patron oh see i'm not as serious with it i'm taking it and you had found the book of a jester and now it's like stuck to your, your players can't get rid of it and it's just this thing that follows them around every time they open it they get this bullshit i get inspired i want to put these books in candle keep and have that yes. just be like yes. a forbidden knowledge part of candle keep yeah there's yeah. like there's no like one a knows that it exists it's 12 bat there's like a 12 banded door that is closed that holds all of the ancient secret knowledge and it's just this fucking library of souls i also like the idea that you go into drome to get somebody to free their soul and and you know that about these tomes and whatnot and you go and you find the story of their life and you open it up and it's just a book because their soul is still stuck in their fucking skull on display oh. at the other hags uh like layer right like oh, that's yeah. i i was thinking they go in they find the book they oh but they open it and they find out all the terrible things that the soul has done and now they have to decide do i actually want to free this thing or is it better off bound here to this book I'm going to go one step further and say you find the story of your own life because she can see the future. Oh, and she's just waiting to harvest your soul to put in it. And the moment you read your own future, your soul gets bound to the book. Oh. Thanks for listening. Bye.